If you'd like to turn, please, to Mark chapter 11, which you'll find on page 847 if you're using the church Bibles. That's Mark chapter 11. The they in verse 1 is Jesus and the crowd of disciples following him on their way up to the Passover festival, up the hill from Jericho. It's just one steep climb from the Jordan Valley up to Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, so in other words, right overlooking Jerusalem, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And when they went away, uh, sorry, and they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. It's almost like he gave them a password, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they'd cut from fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it wasn't the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't let anyone carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written... My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. 
And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that it would be a word of life to each one of us and to us as a church. For Jesus' sake, amen. What would, what would happen if the Lord Jesus Christ himself walked into our gathering this morning and we all knew it was him standing in front of us? Well, one day Jesus did turn up in person at the Jerusalem temple. And his coming proved a huge challenge. The pilgrim crowds were right as they came up with him. Do you remember what they said in verses 9 and 10? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The coming kingdom. Now, if we've been reading, as Mark assumes we have, from the very beginning we'll remember that that was the message right at the start in Mark chapter 1. After John was arrested, Mark 1, 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the great news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, it's arrived. Now is the fulfillment of God's prophecies and words through the prophets. And the kingdom of God is at hand. <laughs> Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. And in these verses we're looking at this morning, 11, 1 to 25, the huge challenge of that coming kingdom comes to the fore. And it's a challenge that reaches down to us today. So first of all, we're going to look at what is this coming kingdom, verses 1 to 10, the coming kingdom. Now, this word Hosanna that the pilgrims cry in verse 9 and 10 had become a word of praise, like we might shout, I know we don't do it a lot in this church, but we might shout, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It was that kind of a word. And the cause of the praise is the coming of someone in the name of the Lord and the coming kingdom. Verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. David, of course, the great king who'd been given the promise of a descendant who would be the Messiah. And did they know that? Well, Mark knows it, and Mark wants us to notice that this is the messianic descendant of David. But why now this talk of a coming kingdom? Well, Jesus has done something which was very remarkable if you know your Old Testament. He seems to be deliberately fulfilling a verse in Zechariah 9, verse 9, an ancient prophecy of 
hundreds of years before, although Mark is not explicit about this, but I think we're expected to understand it. A verse which says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a... What was he mounted on? A donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming to you on a donkey. And what happens in Mark 11? Jesus engineers just this. As one writer puts it, in short, Jesus' entry is blatant messianic self-advertisement. He comes right out into the open, he breaks cover, and he says, look, I am here, right in your midst. He's laying claim to the throne of Israel, but he's coming as the prince of peace, not as a warrior king. He's on a donkey, not a horse. So what do we learn from this? Well, I think we learn a vital lesson about the nature of God's kingdom. There is the coming kingdom of our Father, but the prophecy is about your king comes to you. The coming kingdom is the coming of the king. They are inseparable and interchangeable. So when we think of God's kingdom, it's a phrase that is bandied about in Christian circles quite a lot. We need to think of God's king, King Jesus, and not separate them. So when we pray, as we have already in this service together, your kingdom come, we are praying your king come. Which is why I think the primary focus of the Lord's Prayer in that regard is the coming of Jesus a second time in glory. Well, what about now? Where is the kingdom now? Well, do you remember that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus that's recorded in John chapter 3? where Nicodemus confuses things and thinks he's being asked to get back into his mother's womb a second time or something, because Jesus talks about being born again. But no, Jesus is talking about entering the kingdom. No one can enter the kingdom unless he's born again. And to enter the kingdom means to be, become a subject of the king, to pledge your allegiance. That, in a sense, is the picture of baptism. It's one of the things you do when you get baptized. You publicly pledge your allegiance to the king, and you tell the world, I am now a subject of this kingdom with this king, Jesus. So the evidence of God's kingdom now is not in social structures being changed. That's somehow sometimes what Christians seem to talk about. No, it's in personal subjects of the king. It's in people like you and me. If we are subjects of the kingdom, in other words, if we have pledged allegiance to the king, then we belong to the kingdom, and we are the evidence now of the kingdom of God on earth. So things like you know, making a, a fairer tax system, for example, or, or changing other structures in society are not in themselves a sign of the coming of the kingdom. That's not what it's about. Now, of course, Christian influence should be there, bringing about equality and compassion, yes, but it's not the kingdom coming. 
It's great to have Christians in politics. Um, some of you will know that one of our church members is Jane Dodds, who leads the Welsh Liberal Party. And it's terrific to have her. She's a member of the Welsh Senate. She sits there every week. That's her full-time job. Uh, that's why we don't see much of her. Um, but it's terrific that she's a Christian in politics. And think of Kate Forbes. Um, is Alex around somewhere? He's probably with the rock solid. It's, it's his cousin, in case you were wondering. Alex Forbes' cousin is Kate Forbes. Uh, now, she's had quite a tough week. If you've been following the story, you'll know. Very tough week. But it's great that she's a standing up as a Christian in the political world, running for first minister in Scotland. And wow, does she and Jane and others like them, do they need our prayers? They certainly do. But even if Kate Forbes wins and becomes first minister of Scotland, she's not going to bring the kingdom of God to Scotland, right? It's not going to arrive in Scotland if she's elected as first minister. And we must be very careful that we don't tie being a Christian to voting for a particular party. It's not about politics. It's about something much bigger and longer lasting. And we just need to be careful, I think, about a lot of vague and unhelpful talk about the kingdom of God in Christian circles. No, the kingdom is about the king. It's about Jesus and our relationship to him. We need to keep them connected. So the coming of King Jesus was the coming of the kingdom. Those pilgrims were right in verse 10. Then secondly, the challenge. What is the challenge of the coming of the kingdom? Well, this is verses 11 to 25, and there seem to be two parts to it. The first is a challenge to hypocrisy in the church, verses 11 to 21. Now, for those of you who enjoy sandwiches, this is another delicious Mark sandwich. The cursing of the fruitless fig tree, that's the first bit of bread. The dramatic actions in the temple, that's the filling. And then the withering of the fig, fig tree, discovered withered, that's the other bit of bread. So there's the sandwich. And the cursing and withering of the fig tree is a powerful acted parable of the cursing and withering of temple worship. And please don't worry if you think Jesus is apparently being unfair on the fig tree. It's only a tree. Now, some people say, well, it's possible that Jesus was looking for early edible figs that should have been there and weren't found. Well, maybe that's the case. We're not told. And we are told that Mark knows perfectly well it's not the season for figs, verse 13. That's not the point. This is not a horticultural comment about fig growing. This tree is being used as an illustration, just like this one here. You and I know perfectly well we're not going to find fruit on that tree. I was using it as an illustration, right? So don't come up to me afterwards and say, John, how could you do that to those children? <laughs> it's wicked. <laughs> no, it's an illustration. A fruit tree that only has leaves is a perfect illustration of the problem with the temple in Jerusalem. And as we saw from our reading in Jeremiah, it's, it's, it's not so much that, you know, the, the money changers were charging an exorbitant exchange rate. There's no remark about that. 
Now, there, there had to be an exchange into the temple tax in that particular currency. There had to be the buying and selling of animals, like pigeons, for sacrifice in the temple religion. That's not wrong in itself. The problem was that there was a mere outward show of religion, and there was no inner life, which is as useless as a fruit tree that bears no fruit. Have you ever tried to grow fruit? It's quite hard, isn't it? I've tried for years to grow raspberries, and I'm tempted to blow one to illustrate the success of my fruit growing. Absolutely useless. And about two or three solitary raspberries a year from a whole you know, array of... Now, come, come to me afterwards and tell me what I'm doing wrong, but, but uh, I've, I've given up on raspberries. I've, I've, it was a love-hate relationship. It's purely hate now. And I just said, forget it. If you're not going to produce fruit, I'm not interested in you. Well, apparently Caiaphas, the high priest, a couple of years before this, allowed the traders to come inside the temple precincts. Others, as verse 16, I think, implies, are, are using the temple precincts as a shortcut in Jerusalem. They took up a huge area in the center of Jerusalem. It's a bit like Richmond Park. Hands up here who's never used Richmond Park as a shortcut. No hands. Okay, right, just my point. We've all used Richmond Park. Well, we used to. We can't do it now so easily. But we used to use Richmond Park as a shortcut. Very pleasant one, too, but that's not really what it's there for. And the temple was not there for a shortcut. What was the temple there for? Well, Jesus uses a couple of Old Testament scriptures to remind in his teaching, verse 17, what the temple's for. Is it not written, my house shall be called, and here he quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And then he quotes from Jeremiah 8. In fact, why don't you turn to it, if you've got a Bible there, or on your device. Uh, it's page 636, 636, Jeremiah 8 in the church Bibles. Uh, it's Jeremiah 8 in your device, wherever that, however you're going to find that. Did you spot that at the end of the reading, as Laurie was reading to us? In verse 13 of chapter 7, sorry, chapter 8 of, of Jeremiah when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. There's the fig tree. It was a classic illustration of the people of Israel that was used by the prophets in the Old Testament. Then if you turn back a chapter to chapter 7, verse 11, Remember, Jeremiah is standing, verse, verse 2, at the gate of the Lord's house in accordance with the word of the Lord to him. He's standing at the door of the temple, talking to the people coming into the temple, saying, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 11, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? There's the phrase. Now we see where Jesus gets it from. He's using Old Testament language in Mark 11. A den of robbers. Now, is he talking about just thieving, rotten exchange rates? No. Look back at verse 9 of Jeremiah 7. Here's what he's talking about. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, false gods, go after other gods that you've not known, and then 
Come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. Come to the temple on the Sabbath day and say, we're fine, we're delivered, we're safe, no problem. And then what do you do? You go on doing all these abominations. That's the robbery. In other words, you cannot live your lives in an ungodly way six days a week and then turn up on the seventh day at the temple and claim to be safe in God's presence. So what Jesus was challenging was not so much that there was trade going on where it shouldn't be in the temple precincts, but that the whole system had become rotten to the core. On the outside, it had the appearance of of a right religion, but the internal reality lacked a true and genuine relationship with God. There was no life, there was no sap coming up, if you like. It was all leaves and no fruit. And what a challenge for us, isn't it? Here we are in church. Look at us. Look around. We're all good churchgoers, aren't we? That's why we're here. We got up on a Sunday morning at the crack of dawn, as far as most people would think, and made our way here. Aren't we good? Well, it all looks good on the outside, doesn't it? But what's going on on the inside, in our hearts? And what is going on the rest of the week in our lives? I mean, if a reality TV crew secretly followed you for the rest of this week, for the next seven days, and tracked every moment, every waking moment of your life between now and next Sunday, and recorded everything you said and every action of yours, and then you come back to church next Sunday, and the people who are with you during the week have shown you in church as part, they're shown the recording. What would they say? Would they say, what? You, in church, are out of outfit with what you were doing on Tuesday or Friday or whatever. How does it fit our church-going facade? There's a huge challenge, isn't there, to make sure we're not hypocrites. Now, I'm not saying we are, all of us, at all, but I'm just saying there's a danger, isn't there, that that there's this show of leaves on the outside. It all looks great, but when you actually look for the fruit, it's hard to find. As Jesus looks at the leaves of our lives, individually, together as a church family, is he finding that fruit of the Spirit, that love, not a feeling, but a practical, expressed concern for one another that does things, that spends money and time to help others? Is there that joy, inexpressible, that bubbles up in our hearts as we think of what God has done for us through the Lord Jesus? Is there peace, maybe subjective, but also peace in our relationships with one another? Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness in our marriages, in our other relationships. Gentleness, are we marked out by gentleness? throughout the week, not just on Sundays. Self-control. Well, may God help us to meet the challenge and not be hypocrites. But there's a final challenge, not just a challenge to hypocrisy, but a challenge to prayer in the church, verses 22 to 25. 
Now, I wonder if, as I, as I was reading earlier, and we got to that bit in verse 30, 21, where Peter remembers what Jesus, he heard Jesus curse the fig tree, and he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And then Jesus answers, have faith in God. Now, I don't know about you, but when, I, when you first read that, you think, what's that answer got to do with the point Peter's just made? How does it connect? It feels like a crunching gear change. For those of you with automatics, that doesn't work, I'm sorry. Well, what I think is going on here is that, again, Jesus is cutting to the chase, and Mark is recording that he's going straight to the point. Well, what is the point? Well, remember the context. What, is, what has Jesus just been talking about? What has he just been doing? What has he just been saying in the temple? He's standing there in the temple, verse 17, saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And yet, the Markham sandwich is making clear that this house of prayer is just leaves and no fruit, and it's going to be cursed by God. It's going to wither and we, the reader, with the benefit of hindsight, know that's exactly what happened. The temple was destroyed in AD 70. But even without that knowledge, Peter realizes, I think, that this is the end of the temple. Jesus is actually standing here condemning temple worship. But what is the temple? The temple is God's house, which is a house of prayer. And if the place of prayer, the place you go to to pray, is destroyed and abolished and taken away, how does it work? How does prayer work in that context? And I think what Jesus is doing here is saying, Peter, don't worry. I, I see where you're going with this. You're, saying, you're thinking, well, if, if the fig tree is withered, the one you've cursed, and you're clearly cursing what's going on in the temple, then the temple is over and prayer, this house of prayer is gone. How do we then approach you in prayer? And what Jesus is saying, this is how you do it. faith and forgiveness. I think this is the twofold key here. Now, it's in, just the footnote, it's interesting, isn't it, that it's the chief priests and scribes in verse 18 who are recorded as trying, trying to destroy Jesus. They're trying to find a way that, that doesn't cause popular antagonism and a, a riot. They realize that they fear Jesus because he's so popular. They've got to find a sneaky way to get rid of him. But actually, Jesus is standing there condemning their whole system, as we'll see next time in the parable of the tenants. So Jesus' answer is, when there's no place of prayer to go to, have faith and have forgiveness. Faith is key. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and doesn't doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, you say, that sounds too good to be true. Is that really a blank check drawn on the bank of heaven? Can I just ask for anything and God will give it to me? And then you stop and think if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you think, well, there are prayers that I've prayed that have not been answered. So maybe God's word is not right. What about unanswered prayer? 
Well, how do we sort this one out? Well, one thing that I think helps us is to, to realize that the commands here are plural. It's not you individually. It's you as a group is, I think, the, the, the first thrust. Whatever you ask in prayer, verse 24, this is the conclusion that Jesus comes to. Therefore, I tell you, plural, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you, plural, have received it, and it will be yours, plural. So we need to think about how we, as a, as a family, pray together and ask, what do we together ask God for? Not my personal, individual requests. Yes, it's whoever does it, but it's then applied in a corporate context. I think that's a helpful corrective. Another thing which I think we can assume is that Jesus is talking about and assuming that we're talking about praying for things that God has told us he wants. I think this is one of the really important things when we come to verses like this that we find in the New Testament. It's not a blank check to pray for, do you know what, I fancy a Rolls Royce. I'm going to ask God for a Rolls Royce and I'm going to claim this verse and it says, whatever you ask in prayer, but I'm believing that I'm going to have a Rolls Royce. I'm going to believe really, really hard and God's got to give it to me, right? Wrong. If you know your Bible and you know something of God's heart revealed in the Scriptures, you'll know that our personal wealth and having signs of it is not what it's about. In fact, that's a problem. It's a danger, a snare for the Christian. What are the kind of things that God tells us he thinks are really important? If we ask for those, he'll give them. Well, let me give you an exa- a couple of examples. In this church, we have elders. Now, those elders, according to Scripture, need to be godly men who are able to teach, but primarily who are godly. Well, do you think if we ask God to show us the kind of people who should be elders in this church that he will answer that prayer? I tell you, he will. Do you know what? God cares more about the care of this church and the provision of a replacement for me. We've already prayed about that this morning as I step down later in the summer. God cares more about providing a pastor teacher for Duke Street Church as the senior minister than anybody who's a member of this church. You realize that, don't you? He cares more about that than you do or anyone. And if we ask him to provide that, do you think he's going to say no? Or do you think he's going to provide? I tell you, he will provide. You could be absolutely sure of that. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Faith is key. Just very briefly as we finish, verse 25. Faith and forgiveness. Forgiveness is key. Again, the context is communal. This is in the relationships one with another. We can't stand and pray in a prayer meeting and ask God for things or pray with others when we haven't forgiven others in our hearts. This is why praying the Lord's Prayer, which we did earlier, it's a very dangerous, there's a particularly dangerous clause in there, isn't there? I hope you realize that as you, pr- as you pray it every Sunday. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So we're asking the Lord to treat us in exactly the same way we are treating others with regard to those who sin against us. It's a very dangerous prayer to pray if we're not forgiving others from the heart.
but we, we can with God's help, and we should. But we need to pray, forgiving others, and then God will answer. So the challenge of the coming kingdom. If the coming of the kingdom is the coming of the king, then of course the ultimate challenge is the second coming. Are we longing for that day? Are we ready for that day? That's a question each of us has to answer. When the Lord returns, will he find fruit in our lives or only leaves? Let's pray. Our Father, we see the challenge of the coming kingdom, the challenge of the coming king. We feel that challenge from the encounter Jesus had with the religion of his day, the, the Jewish religion in the temple. Please help us to learn those lessons and not be hypocrites. Please help us, Lord, to pray and to trust you with the answers. And Father, please help us to be ready for that day when the Lord Jesus does turn up, as it were, bodily, in person. May we be people in whose lives are found fruit, not just leaves. For Jesus' sake, amen.